Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. The last few podcasts have been things that I've known a fair bit about, so this time we thought we'd do something that you do a lot of writing papers. I've been meaning to write my first proper paper for submission to a journal for a while now, never quite get around to it. Do you have any tips to share, Andrew? Well, now, I have to admit, I've only written scientific papers, so it's not generalisable to every field, but I can give a few hints and tips on where to start. So how much have you written? Um, I've done about 20 papers that I've written as probably first author and another 30 or so I've been somewhere in the middle doing varying degrees of work. And then I've loads and loads of papers that I really meant to get out quickly, but they never ever happened. So how do you decide which ones to spend time on? Well, this is quite difficult because sometimes you have a very distinct project, like say a piece of software, and then it's quite obvious. You just want to write the method up and get it out. And then others, it can be a bit blurry. You know, if you have some data sets you want to analyze, you know, do you keep on adding and adding and adding? Or do you split it up into different parts? You know, do you want maybe two or three smaller papers or do you want one big paper? So it's kind of difficult to know, but generally I like the kind of smaller self-contained projects because I'm not an academic. I'm a, I am support academia and support research. And so I've, I personally find it easier to block off a piece of time, say a few weeks, do a piece of work, write it up and then forget about it. Okay, so you've decided which papers to write and then how do you approach it? Well, the first thing is you need someone driving the paper and so many papers and ideas I've seen just fail because lots of people think this is a great idea but no one takes charge, no one actually does it and goes away and basically project manages it. And that's really important because you need someone driving and it could be a PhD student, it could be anyone, you know, they don't have to be senior but it needs someone to own it, then get other people to do whatever bits of work they need to do. Are there ever difficulties where two people feel they should be the owners of a particular paper before it's even been written, I mean? Oh yeah, all the time. Particularly when you get different research groups working together, which, you know, collaboration is great, but you do, up front, I find, have to agree who's going to be the first authors or corresponding last author, you know, the, the major positions. Because what you don't want is someone to feel really put out Also, you need to make sure that you keep track of everyone who's actually contributed scientifically to the work because they may be co-authors. And I find actually it's quite good to keep a note of what they did because some papers, you know, might have 20, 30 authors, but did they really do the same amount of work? And journals, some journals are even starting to ask for a list of how individual authors contributed as well, that it's not just this massive list of contributors without any indication of who did any work. Yeah, like you're you're on there because you happen to be mates with someone, you know. But that's kind of where I would use acknowledgements now these days. Mm-hmm. I would put in, you know, so-and-so, thanking so-and-so. And often that's what's required, you know. If people are, are thanked, they don't mind. Yeah, as long as their work's acknowledged and not just invisible. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, a recent paper, and talk me through how you approached it. Okay, so I wrote a piece of software recently called Albatradis. It's only a preprint at the moment. But what I did was I wrote some software and then I wrote a draft paper. For me, the way I wrote it was I thought about the figures and the tables. Like those are the key pieces of information within the paper. And I built a paper around that. Mm -hmm. And that's a reasonable place to start because those are nice 
things. And generally when you're doing a scientific paper, those are key outputs. Then you can start building it around and you can, you know, there's a lot of standard stuff you would put in, like methods and materials. And it's very important to write it in such a way that someone can follow it like a recipe. And, you, you know, that might take the form of, I use this software, this version from this person, you know, obviously citing them. Mm-hmm. And then I did this and this and this. What you don't want is just saying, well, I use this in-house pipeline uh, or this magic black box or the result magic out of nowhere. Well, obviously, because otherwise people can't judge the validity of what you've done. This is really important in this day and age because everyone is about open data, open reproducible science. And the benefit to you actually is more citations. If someone can take your method and reuse it or extend it, well, then, you know, you're going to get citations. And at the end of the day, that's a really important measure of the impact of your work in academia. Well, of course, then if you haven't shared your method, then your method can have no further impact except for your own work. Yeah, and it's free, you know, because everyone is very good at telling people what they've done. And now often in journals, they will put the methods in smaller text Mm -hmm. or they'll dump it somewhere else, maybe buried in a supplementary material, but I find it's really important. And the methods alone are not enough to share, though, if you really want to make things reproduce. No, I mean, you have to share your data, so put it in an open repository. And um, we've talked about that before, like Zenodo or for, for genomics would be in the ENA or places like that. Or if you have software, you need to put that into an open source repository like GitHub or GitLab, places like this, just somewhere where people can get it. There's no point in doing a bit of work and then people find, oh, actually, this super critical step, you haven't told anyone, you know, what Mm. data you actually used for that and so they can't reproduce the results. Of course. And so then how did you set the paper out? Well, you you do an abstract, but that's generally at the end. But the first section is the introduction. And personally, in, in my field, one of the best piece of advice my supervisor gave me was you have to write down in this order, what is the problem? Why is it hard? What have other people done? And what have you done? And that's a really nice way of making a flow because writing introduction can be difficult, I find, and this at least puts some structure on it. You can change your end slightly then after that, but it does mean that you're trying to answer very important key questions. And it, it really plays to your readers' needs as well. If they're able to see those key, the answers to those key questions in the start of the introduction, they're able to decide whether this is worth pursuing further, whether it's relevant enough to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people just read, if they get into the paper, they'll read the intro, maybe the conclusions. And then if it's interesting, they'll read the middle. You know, if you're skimming a lot of papers, that's what you have to do to get through them. The introduction is important. And for me, that's where you put your literature review Mm -hmm. in in the section, you know, what have others done. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're writing a new method, you have to compare it to existing methods as well. Mm -hmm. You know, is it 5% better? Or, you know, what are the key things that it's actually solving? Mm -hmm. Because if you've written piece of software or method doesn't really solve anything that's really useful well is it really all that important or are you just ticking a box so in papers in your field how would the paper progress after the introduction you have a method section and then you have results and discussion we talked about methods already you then have say results mm-hmm. so you know you you ran an experiment what happened mm-hmm. generally that's more reporting yeah so very factual very factual and you know you might have tables in there Mm -hmm. you might have a few pretty figures that kind of thing yeah uh often journals have limits on figures and tables so if you have a lot of them they'll end up in supplementary and for some papers like supplementary can be massive Mm -hmm. 
but it's it's good to have there if you have produced solid estate and it is useful to the community you can put it in there you should also make sure that you actually refer to every figure and table in your text and in the supplementary you refer to it you don't have these just data there for the sake of having data and also if you have a supplementary table pop it into a spreadsheet don't just try and put a massive table into a word document that just doesn't uh, doesn't work very well you would have discussion and that has to be clear. You have to set out exactly what you've found. Don't kind of infer mm-hmm. or have the reader trying to infer what you've actually discovered, what's good. You know, just say it up front. You know, this is good because blah, mm-hmm. or we found this or it's better because, you know, you, you do need to tell people in clear language what you've got and what you found. Be honest about the assumptions you've made mm-hmm. and the limits. There's nothing worse than reading a paper and you can tell straight off they've left out this key piece of information you know, you know that, that it is not as good as they say and it won't work in this circumstance. But, you know, just say it up front because not everyone will know that. So far, everything you've said is very similar to what I would expect to see in a librarianship paper. Except maybe our papers might have a bit more of the literature view section. Yeah, so it depends on what you're doing. I mean, for a lot of scientific papers, you're building on something existing. So the lit review is reasonably straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure... When there's a bigger corpus of knowledge that you have to cite, then that becomes, you know, you need a bigger section. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for the introduction, say I've written a new method and it's 50% faster than what's out Mm. there. Well, you might go and have a quick review of all the tools that are out there and you would say, okay, this is this is great because it does this Mm -hmm. and its limitations are this, you know, and you can kind of tick off this what competition is like. This is why we've actually gone and done this research and this is why you should actually use it. The other thing that you haven't mentioned is acknowledgements. Generally acknowledgements in my field go at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So after conclusion, you'd have funder statements and acknowledgements. Sometimes they're kind of wrapped up into one. It depends on the journal. I've never really seen limits on acknowledgements. So, you know, you can pop stuff in there like thanking the, say, core bioinformatics service, which obviously is great, <laughs> um, or other people who've helped out, you know, and that's where you can uh, acknowledge people who have maybe made a non-scientific contribution or mm-hmm. a non-research contribution. Most of the papers you've written have been collaborative. So I'm really interested in what tools you use to make that work smoothly. Honestly, it never, ever totally works smoothly. Mm. But at the early stages of writing a paper, generally, I would do the first initial big draft and then I would open it up to other people and I would use Google Docs. Mm-hmm. I found for the past few years is fantastic because you can do collaborative editing. You can see exactly who is editing at the same time. In fact, for this podcast right now, we have a collaborative document open. We do indeed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, a lot of companies would have Office 365 as well. And that is an option for online editing of Word documents. That's really, really useful. And I'd, I'd recommend people do it. You can also do things like have collaborative uh, reference managers working. It doesn't always work, but things like Paperpile are quite good. Mm. If you have a reference manager that's only on your computer, sometimes that can cause problems with collaborative editing. I Unfortunately, I think for nearly every paper I've ever written, I've had to put in the references multiple times. It defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Actually, often when I find that I'm reviewing other people's papers or helping other people with their papers, I will just put in brackets, reference this mm. paper or put a comment in because I know that they can then go and do the common, do the referencing. I remember you telling me one time about somebody that went and edited all your references and you ended up having to redo them all. That did happen recently, yes. Yeah. Someone <laughs> did go and edit, manually edit the automatically generated references. So as soon then as I went and regenerated it by adding in one extra reference, 
it deleted all of that stuff, <laughs> which unfortunately is, is a bit of a pain. It saves you from having to go and do things like email around a Word document with version 1.5, mm. final, final, Andrew's version, <laughs> Tuesday. Surely you would never name files in that way in the first place though, Andrew. Oh, it's a car crash. <laughs> uh, when you start getting people sending them around and then you have thing problems with multiple different versions flying around because, you know, you might email all of the co-authors at the same time. And they'll each come back with different comments. Of course. Luckily now, people who are reasonably au fait with uh, editing papers and commenting on papers, they will take whatever the last version emailed around is mm-hmm. and kind of daisy chain it. But and not track always. track changes as well. Oh, track changes. You must turn track changes on. Yes. The number of times people don't <laughs> is just insane. That sort of knowledge that nobody actually tells you how to track changes. It's just assumed everybody knows this stuff already. Mm-hmm. Or how important it is or... How you shouldn't change the text in some circumstances. You should just put in a comment instead and let the actual person driving the paper sort it out. Mm -hmm. But of course, I originally did my paper writing in LaTeX because Mm -hmm. I came from a computer science background. And that's a totally different ballgame. I personally love LaTeX. Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful, very powerful. The documents and the, the publications that come out the other end are just absolutely phenomenally good. Yeah. The only problem is that it, it can be difficult, you know, there, there's a bit of a barrier there. Well, it's... Yeah, so there are online tools that you can use like Overleaf and Ch- they make that barrier lower because they make it possible for somebody who doesn't use LaTeX all the time to edit in something in a, in a processor that looks more like Word. It just makes it easier. Yeah, but I'm sure with LaTeX you always have to go back for that that last 5% to make it work. You probably have to go back into the code and edit it. <laughs> it's always a way like, I mean, the number of time I've, times I've done negative margins and mm-hmm. these kind of things to kind of budge it in is, is just insane. So although LaTeX is great, it's very difficult, I find, for collaborative work because Although it's ubiquitous in computer science, it's not necessarily ubiquitous everywhere else. And if you have even one or two co-authors on a paper who aren't familiar with it or familiar enough with it, they will be put off contributing. You know, it's kind of, you have to go with the lowest common denominator, which in most cases is Word or Google Docs. So you've got your paper, you've shared it with your collaborators, you've come to something that you think is roughly there. What do you do next? Well, you have to make sure that you email the paper around to everybody because all the co-authors have to read it. Mm-hmm. And it's best at that point to say, to leave it open whether they want to be a co-author or not, mm-hmm. because some people may not have felt that they've done enough work to justify being on the paper. And you just have to make sure. So sometimes a question like, if you ask people what they felt their contribution was, you have to word it very nicely, of course. Mm-hmm. But if they can't say what they've contributed to this paper, then they shouldn't be on it. Yeah. There's the university has some authorship guidelines that are actually really helpful for helping people navigate those conversations. Yeah, it is an important conversation to have. So you have your paper, you've agreed your authorship, everybody's signed off that they're happy for it to go. Then what? Well, okay, so you sent it them for comment. They're happy with it. But another tip is just make sure you put in a timeline and say, I want comments back by this date. Don't leave it open-ended because we're in academia. People are busy. Mm. And if you leave it open-ended, you'll get comments back in a year. You might say, okay, I want to submit it in two weeks. Mm -hmm. This kind of thing. And you need to leave time for yourself to actually be able to integrate the edits. Of course. So then the next thing I would do would be put them by archive or archive. Because it's great to get stuff out there as quick as possible. And you'll get people reading the paper, coming back with some comments that you can improve things, you can improve it before you then go and submit to a journal. 
and also then you can promote it on uh, on social media like Twitter and get the message out there that you've done this work. And regardless of whether it's published or not, people will read it and they will they know that not much is probably going to change in the final published version. Mm. So you got your work out there. You start your citations much earlier on because people read it and go, oh, I must integrate that into my paper. And I've had cases where I've had a preprint that's been cited by another preprint <laughs> before my paper has been formally published. And it's like, it's, it's brilliant, you know, to get it all out there so quick and you slash a year off the turnaround time. Well, that's supposed to be what all of this is about. Publishing is supposed to be about sharing research so that people can move on and develop their knowledge. So it makes perfect sense to me to, to get it out as quickly as possible. Absolutely, yeah. And of course, the most important thing is that Google Scholar does pick up preprints, you know. So mm-hmm. that's uh, that gets your message out there. So you have put it on a preprint server, you've had a bit more comment and improvement from it being on there, and you get to the point of submitting it to a journal. Bioarchive allows you to click this magic button, submit to journal, and it'll submit to a journal. And now not all the journals, there's, there's just a few, and then it sends the metadata and the paper. That's assuming that the journal allows it, and that you've roughly got what the journal uh, wants as input. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if you want to submit a 10,000 word paper and they only accept 2,000 words, well, then, you know, obviously they might reject it at that point. But it does cut down on on the time. And a lot of them will accept unstyled papers because it's a bit of a pain that many journals require, have a very rigid format for draft papers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they may not even accept it. They may not get past the editor stage. So at least this means that you can just quickly fire it into a journal. It gets past the editor or it doesn't. A lot of papers don't get past the editor if they're in very popular journals or mm-hmm. if you send it to a popular journal. So generally what I do is I would draw up a list of journals, that I, an ordered list of journals that I want my paper to go into and then just start working from the top down. How do you decide which journal to submit to? That's a very difficult question. Well, it depends. If you want to get something out really quick and maybe, I don't know, you, you want to finish up a project, you might submit it to a reasonable journal. Now I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to say a dirty word here, right? Impact factor. No. <laughs> but actually, it's a reasonable way of seeing. Okay, which journals are more likely to be in the better bracket uh, than in the rubbish bracket? So it is interesting. Impact factor is a bit of a dirty word now. My personal view on this is that it's not appropriate to use in assessment of research at all, ever. But as an indicator to consider when you're trying to decide which journal to submit to, among other factors, fair enough. So I'd start with, well, what is a topic? Not every journal accepts every topic, of course. And then work my way down, you know, put into a journal where you think people are going to read it mm-hmm. or where your peers are publishing as well. Do you want to put it into a general journal? Do you want to put it into more specialised? I personally prefer more specialised because then obviously you're going to get more, more relevant readers. And then you submit and then you get rejected by the editor who hasn't read it and doesn't realise how fantastic your work is. Because of course your work is fantastic. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but eventually you'll you'll get it accepted somewhere. There, I've never heard of a paper that has just been totally rejected and has never been published in my life. You know, you'll always find a source for it. Yeah, well, so that's a whole conversation for another day. So if you're not going through BioArchive, if you're submitting to a journal that's not connected up, what's the process then? Generally, you have to sign up for an account and fill in lots of metadata and write a cover letter. This is something that people often forget 
and the cover letter is written in a small little text box at the end very quickly in five minutes and that's that's a terrible thing because then you find you've been rejected at the editor stage so you have to think about it in advance write it properly in words spell check it format it what are the editors looking for in that well for a popular journal an editor might get 10 times more papers than they can ever accept so you have to make it clear what you're publishing why they should actually publish it you know make it clear that this isn't just going to be another paper that gets zero citations mm. and will just languish at the in the long tail of science that it's actually got something interesting and this is where you can kind of big yourself up uh this is the elevator pitch say you can mention things like altmetric scores on bioarchive mm-hmm. as proof that other people have at least acknowledged paper exists and, and might think it's okay. But you have to keep it short as well. You don't want a big long tome. It's got to be just a few sentences. Why is my paper worthy of this journal? Just enough to catch the attention. Yeah. So obviously this doesn't happen often, but what do you do if you get rejected? Well, you turn the paper around as quick as possible and shove it into the next journal. You'll probably have to change the formatting and style, you know, if you can't just resubmit with a bioarchive. But that all takes time and it's very important actually to read style guides. Nothing worse than you leave out a critical section that this particular journal requires and then it gets rejected for for silly reasons, you know? Mm. And also you got to look at things like word count. Even silly things like, uh, is, it, is it an American journal or a British journal? You know, do you have to write in British English or American English? Mm. And these little things kind of are important because when it does go out to review, you need to make the paper readable for the reviewer. Usually that's question Uh, that reviewers have to answer how readable is this paper if you just do the simple little things like you know making sure there's no spelling mistakes and uh, it's written in a nice clear manner and it tells a nice story then you know you're more likely to get a pass whereas if it's written in very poor quality sentences it's disorganized it's not gonna go uh, through as smoothly so you have managed to get a pass the editor into the hands of some reviewers what's next Well, if you ask an academic for an opinion, they will always give you an opinion. So don't be disheartened when you get a big list of uh, comments back. It always happens. I remember you commenting once that if if the reviewers have no comments, they probably haven't read the paper properly. Yeah, (laughs) that is exactly it. And also then the editor doesn't really use that as a real review. You know, if they say another great paper from the page lab. (laughs) Well, they're like, okay, great. But that's not telling us, did you actually read the paper? So thanks, Andrew. I have that paper that I'm planning to write one day, someday soon, and I'll definitely take some of your advice into account. Thank you very much. And it's been a great little chat we've had. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.